0: Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the hearts of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay. Welcome to Tiny Dragon. And today, our episode, we have Jeffrey Barr here with us. So Jeffrey, I knew you back many years ago. I remember you first started Grayscale, you were doing consulting. And then the next time I knew you, you were starting startups and then involved in Founder Institute. And then eventually like you, you're now like a VC <laughs> and you were also training up tech startups in India Accelerator. So I know you're stationed in Hong Kong. Why don't you give us the full background about how you got started in the startup space and how you help these startups get to product market fit?
1: Okay. First of all, thank you for having me, Elaine. Great to be here and almost to to be one of your one of your guests. The full background, I don't know how long you have, but that's probably a five-hour talk. But a quick background is that born and raised in the Netherlands, set up multiple businesses throughout the years. Uh, I would say seven businesses on three continents. I set up businesses in Europe. I set up businesses in Asia and in North America. Most of them failed. Some of them went okay-ish and yeah, yeah, like some of them went pretty well. It's... I've been an entrepreneur almost all my working life. I only had like a salary slip for probably 15% of my working career. I've always been responsible for my own income. And Mm. yeah, especially when it comes to building products or building services. That's always what my yeah, my interest was and what I've always done because I'm originally by education a mechanical engineer but a commercial mechanical engineer. And a technical people can build something but you cannot sell it or salespeople can sell something but it's technically not viable to make. And on that bridge, that that's where my expertise lies and that's always almost where all my working experience is in, right? I sometimes jokingly call it if I have to... Narrow it down to uh, one sentence is I manage expectations mm. from both sides because I've also throughout my working experience, I've been on both sides of the table. I've been the client, I've yeah. been the supplier, I've been the uh, founder looking for investment and I've been the investor.
0: Wow. I,
1: um, um, I've been the the, uh, the product builder, but I'm also being the, the people who are looking for a product. Quite often, I've seen those sites, and then doing that for on three continents, yeah, really, yeah, gave me a good perspective on the yeah the challenges of building products or building services on yeah f- for different kind of audiences.
0: Great, uh, yeah. So th- those are two themes we want to focus on. One is uh, how do you help tech startups find product market fit, and then the other theme is like. When they go to a foreign market, and and with your experience, you're in Asia, Europe. Uh, now you're like coaching India uh, startups. Like how 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 does culture you come come into a factor, and how challenging that is, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If if a product works in one market, doesn't by definition mean it works also in another market. Yeah. It, it could be, but then quite often uh, you have to uh, localize, and uh, localization is uh, quite often overlooked. And there are some very interesting um, use cases there that I've yeah always been following. Um, um, uh, just f- out of common interest that really shows that localization could uh, make or break a product.
0: Maybe first, let's stop out a little. Like, why did you choose to be in Hong Kong coming from the Netherlands? <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> right. Hong Kong is a good place, right? Hong-, Hong Kong is home for us. Um, uh, we moved here uh, a little bit over 12 years ago. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, we technically moved here for the work uh, of, of my wife but we only came here for 3 years and after more than 12 years we're still here. Yeah. Um, I know a
0: lot of those people. <laughs> yes. yes.
1: Yeah, like it, it, it is a transition city that means that every 3 to 4 years there is a yeah, like there is a flush throughout your friend groups that uh, people that are coming here for only three or four year contracts then leave and of course that's normally a little bit more organic they don't leave all in the third year and then um, yeah yeah. people are coming and going in, in that sense but no it is it is a very interesting city because probably not a lot of cities in the world that have so many people coming in and out from different areas of course mostly finance here in Hong Kong but still right before I moved to Hong Kong I didn't know people in Mexico I I only know a few people in in America now like I if I go there I can probably do I don't know a a round trip and meet meet every evening somebody else that I already know because I met them here in Hong Kong right so It's a great place also to to grow your network and but also to come into contact with people that you never normally never would have met, even if you travel to the the countries where they are originally from.
0: Interesting, yeah. And and what surprised me was you were running a a, like a the Open Web Collective with startups focusing on the India market while you're in Hong Kong. So that was another surprise. Like, why why India?
1: Yeah, the it is interesting in the sense that last year I run the OWC program, the Open Web Collective, which is an accelerator. And there, in, indeed, that's the focus on Web3, chain agnostic. And there I saw, indeed, that, yeah, there were some projects there that were built by Indian founders. Mm-hmm. And, and that was quite interesting because also, at that point, I went looking into a little bit more. And then if you just look at the amount of, Commits on GitHub, and you select on languages that are used in the Web3 space, and then yeah, the uh, the amount of commits from the uh, Indian region is just exponentially growing. That means that there are a lot of technical people uh, in India uh, looking at Web3. Okay. Um,
0: but they speak so, English or Hindi?
1: <laughs> oh no, uh, 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 99% speaks English. So mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's not a big problem at all. But then when I saw that and then somebody that I knew came up to me and said, hey, like we want to set up an accelerator separately in India. Do you want to help us out? Because you have experience in running accelerator programs, in helping entrepreneurs scale up. Do you want to help? And they're like, sure, let me become an advisor. And then I will help you with setting up the the program, which became eventually a Graviton accelerator. Mm -hmm. And when when we're doing that, uh, one of the biggest uh, drivers for that accelerator was also like, hey, there are so many technical... Experts here in India that are very clever, can build something very well, but the challenge usually is business side of things and marketing side of things. Mm. right? The Accelerator is also in in curriculum set up to to help those, say, Web 2 or Web um, 2.5 founders to uh, find their way into the Web 3 space and how to build a business around that and how to market those products into the market. Um, mostly what they're building is for an international audience because India is still quite um, strict when it comes to uh, anything crypto. Totally, yeah. So quite often, yeah, they can just set up a legal entity in another jurisdiction and then start building. And so they can build, but they cannot use the product themselves in the markets where they are from. So oh. quite often, one of the uh, things in the, you probably lived your whole life in India, but there's more outside of that when it comes to culture, when it comes to building product, but and how Other regions are going about with, say, just the use of credit cards or the use of cash or Mm -hmm. the use of certain services, right? And that's how I I rolled into that that accelerator and helped set up and also run the first cohort in the beginning of this year. And we're currently open for applications for the second cohort.
0: Oh, awesome. So how do they find product market fit if they're targeting Western markets and they never live there?
1: Helping them do building the products in the sense that Web3 is a little bit of a special mm-hmm. product, right? It's quite often the ideas from the developed in the Web3 space are coming to support the market itself. For instance, decentralized exchanges, right? That's yeah. that's something that is there to support the market itself, right? There is no outside forces that like hey you're building a decentralized exchange for the cryptocurrency users right Mm -hmm. and that means that you're building something to scratch your own itch product market fit at that point is quite often there because you're surrounding yourself with the people that are already in the industry and are complaining about exactly the same thing
0: so it's early adopters right Yes, yes.
1: yes. And the early adopters are are already together, right? So Mm -hmm. you don't have to go out and validate your idea because you're smack in the middle of it.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. But that's also the the, the problem with a lot of uh, projects that will never work is that because they think they have a solution to something, but they don't really know the problem yet but they just heard that somebody else is also working on that yeah uh, a lot of projects don't make it there's a lot of and as i i always call that like the the mango on the blockchain right like um, mango? <laughs> How uh, how many times you already projects have tried to build a kind of like a supply chain, a tracking system where you can, when you go to the supermarket and you can scan a QR code on the mango and then it shows where you're coming from, where the mango is uh-huh. coming from. Right. Which is not, which cannot be changed, right? Because something on, on on the blockchain or most of the blockchains cannot be changed. So at that point, you know where that mango comes from. Yeah. But the biggest problem there is that who guarantees me that the QR code on that mango is representing that mango, right? There, so there's still it
0: source could be of, fake, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Like you, uh, you still have to trust somebody at that point that. When they put on that uh, QR code on that mango, that is indeed representing the hash on that blockchain, I right?
0: see. And,
1: and and that's typical for a lot of kind of like a real world product. Yeah, bringing that onto uh, onto a blockchain. It's also relevant for art. It's also relevant for other things like real world assets, as in, for instance, property. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you still have to trust the the organizations that say, hey. This apartment building is now chopped up in different um, uh, hashes, uh, and here's the document to prove that. Yeah, then like uh, you still have to prove that, right? So
0: real estate, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, so it is. Um, um, so it can't be a...
0: totally decentralized. Then it it ne- still needs somebody to trust human.
1: Uh, for most of the things that are are there in real life yes and then still even most of the decentralized finance products out there aren't decentralized at all they usually at that point there is an organization that still if they want to could unplug service or notes or uh, stop (laughs) the service right even the mining rigs that are Maybe even, yeah, the, the organization who, who started the, the chain still has like a significant amount of mining rigs. If they would stop it now, then yeah, uh, the, the product will go down. So, real decentralization, yeah, is very hard to find.
0: Mm, okay, okay. Just one more question about your background. I see that you currently have a M- Maluna, like your your that you, you, you want to yes. talk about that too. Yes, that's the most recent. Uh,
1: yeah, um, the M- Mulana. Mulana uh, is basically two um, uh, two things. One is um, we have uh, Mulana VC, Mulana Capital, which mm-hmm. is a early stage uh, primary market VC fund. We uh, invest uh, small tickets into uh, early stage companies, usually pre-seed or, or seed in the web.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, and we're mostly looking at infrastructure. Onboarding, off ramping, security, decentralized, the deep in so that's the deep in sense for decentralized infrastructure for physical for physical products. So that's a little bit the the area that we're servicing with that VC fund. And yeah. under the same branding, we we have an investment management company that's going to set up 100 virtual asset funds here, licensed here in Hong Kong.
0: Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Are there certain verticals that you apply Web3 to or certain?
1: Yeah, most m- mostly indeed infrastructure projects. Web3 um,
0: infrastructure, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Web3 infrastructure. If, if you go to website, you probably see a few projects that, that we supported when, yeah, like that are there to built for instance one of the projects that we're invested in is metagravity developed a infrastructure for vr and the metaverse projects where and you probably already did at one point a, a vr session somewhere and then you can only do what 30 people in one instance they created an infrastructure and they just recently also did a proof of concept with that with 30,000 people in one instance Mm, so there's about that's a thousand x right Right. that's going to be groundbreaking especially for uh, game developers for event organizers all those kind of things so that those kind of projects are the project that we're looking for with mulana vc
0: i see and do you need the startup to have certain traction before you invest in them no stage?
1: does that? of course if there is traction always better right I always say a VC is in the business to reduce risk for themselves yeah. so, right so if there is traction that's a reduced risk for an investor mm-hmm. um but quite often we're still in the stages uh, investing that there is no traction at all yet so we have to believe in the technology we have to believe in the founders and also of course in 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 the market and those three key, um uh, items which is probably true for most of the investors and especially when it comes to uh, founders and the team is is this a team that make this happen mm. and i always say that i personally think that a founding team has to have four competences mm. one is business in general right like yep. somebody who knows how to build a business somebody who knows how a profit and loss balance sheet works and that kind of thing yep. um then you have somebody who is good in business development, right? right? sales, somebody who's uh, not an introvert, but knows how to start um, uh, and uh, sell uh, products. Um, uh, the third one is technical. Right. So um, uh, a CTO style person who can build the technology uh, that, that is required to, to, to build this product. And then the fourth one for me is always uh, experience, a user experience person, because even if it's B2B, the user experience, in, in my point of view, is extremely important. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that you want in your core product, because that user experience person also in the beginning can help with the validation with the direction with the strategy of the product and yeah like it should be in my point of view a, a part of the of the co-founders or at least from the founding team that they with that knowledge of building a product from the ground up won't leave that easily like everything else around that legal hr whatever you can hire right? And uh, uh, developers, you, you can hire. But those four competences, and that's usually not in one person. I, I can't remember if I've ever seen a project where those four competences was in one person. So usually, it could be two, but usually three.
0: Yeah, and I think what's special about you is I uh, you, you, like for Grayscale, you were helping these companies build the user experience, right? Do, do you help your startups with, building or you mainly invest in teams that you select uh,
1: mostly do uh, the selection and team that we invest we, we also help them but we usually don't help them on the, on the part of user experience because <laughs> there's also like one of the reasons why i look at projects is see if they are focusing on user experience and if they are yeah then we might be in, uh, investing in them so that means that my advice on that part will very quickly run out because then they already have somebody within the team that knows way more from the product than, uh, than I do. But as, as a VC, and I know a lot of them call that, but we definitely have additional value to the projects because of also the background of the, of the partners involved and the team involved but also the network that we bring to the table for those founders, which will definitely help them also with future fundraising rounds and and that kind of thing.
0: Do you help them build the team then? Um,
1: It it could be that if they are saying, hey, we are looking to uh, hire a certain role, uh, then either we can also look in our network if they don't have candidates yet. But also it could be that they ask us to, hey, can you also talk to this Mm. we already had two interview rounds and maybe you can also uh, give your opinion about this person uh, when it comes to working with us at that point also for me is a a culture fit would be very interesting uh, to see but also their background right for instance if it's a cto does this person beside of doing uh, freelancing also has run a team because if you're Pre seed or seed stage company, and uh, you're becoming uh, on as a CTO. Do you have experience in building a development team? If you're you could be a great builder, but if you've never really had a team of 10 developers or 15 developers under you and to manage them, yeah, then you are very quickly run out of steam uh, as a CTO because, yeah, you can be a great builder, but yeah then you're getting challenges down the road when you're probably in a year from now and you're doing another round and you're you really get traction your team grows to say 15 20 people all yeah. those kind of, yeah like uh, uh, all, all those yeah items we could help the founders also in in yeah s- selecting those kind of people
0: in my experience looking at a lot of tech startups usually they don't have the user experience people right what are is that normal or do you? Uh, it is normal
1: because I was actually on, on on the deal flow meeting yesterday and that project was raising a significant amount of capital. And they said, yeah, we're now still on the shoestring and we do this or that. And then, but as soon as we close around, we will start help hiring developers. And then we're like, but your a, part, a big part of your uh, product will be B2C. Right. I have not heard you talk about
0: the customer. Experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to hire a C a CXO, like a chief experience officer? Right. Yeah. And we're like, yeah, no, definitely we, uh, we're going to do that. But so something like that, especially when a part of your business is B2C or like very heavily. Depending on user experience, then a CXO or a similar role, yeah, should be in your pitch deck. Should be or like the mm-hmm. strategy to hire a person like that should be there, uh, and make them a part of your either co-founding team or um or of the founding team.
0: Mm-hmm. In the VC world, do you think it's a norm yet to value user experience in in a tech team, tech startup team?
1: It it probably will be valued, and probably they will look at it, but they might not be as pressing towards it as I personally am.
0: well I see. Yeah, because because you have the expertise, right? Let's. Have you seen any changes since COVID with the tech scene? Like, has market changed uh, ever since? Like these few years?
1: Yeah, yeah like, I think the market has changed uh, in the sense that. um people accept remote products way more than before COVID,
0: right? right?
1: Um, We all have used Zoom uh, or Google Meets or uh, whatever product uh, that you prefer to use there for meetings that before COVID, we would never would afford to do on a computer with a screen and not in the same room, right? That also means that COVID helped the transition towards trusting products on the internet that you've never seen before.
0: Uh,
1: In the Web3 space, to be honest, not a huge difference in the sense that a lot of that was already decentralized. But what you now more and more see is that teams are decentralized and people are working more and more like... Quite often people uh, ask me also now is like, hey, does Mulana invest only in Hong Kong-based companies? I'm like, actually, there's no Hong Kong-based company that we (laughs) invest in. But then again, like even if the project that we are investing in, like where are they based? Right. Is that where the legal entity is? Is that where the CEO founder is? Because probably 80% of them are not even in the same country. So that's also more and more accepted now than before before COVID. It- Are
0: investors okay with it, knowing that the founding yeah. team is all distributed and not in an office, <laughs>
1: like? Yeah, yeah. As long as they produce and as long as they build a product in 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 a good quality. Now I have to say I've a little caveat in there that depending on what you're building, that could work, right? For me personally, still when it comes to designing work i would like to have at least a, a, a few of the people within arm reach if i would be building something because that will make the communication or hey can you check this quickly if you now would do that online and we're like hey can you check this quickly then it could take a couple of hours and and on the other hand a lot of technical people love working remote because yeah. there's nobody there that asks them, hey, can you check this quickly? <laughs> they right. yes. work it,
0: in the AMs, right? Yeah, but it, it's cool.
1: so, yes. So that metal has two sides, right? I probably think that a lot of developers and designers like to work remote because there is nobody hovering yes. behind okay. them asking, can you check this or what are you doing? But on the other hand, yeah, it, it requires some adjustments of uh, mostly, I have to say from from the product owner, from uh, from management. But I think personally that investors accept it way more. they have to. Most of the investments that we've done, we've never met the before the investment, never met the, pro, the team in person. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, so it's just, just online meetings, okay. due diligence, that kind of thing. Uh, I probably, because I quite often also go to, to different events and, and that cafe probably met the most amount of founders in our portfolio team in person when I'm, for, for instance, flying to Dubai or go to Token 2049 or go to other events and yeah, meet up with the portfolio companies.
0: Okay, interesting. Wow, so yeah, investors became more much more open-minded than like they don't see they need to see how big is your office, like how many people are sitting there, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. I still remember it's from time like probably ten years ago, but there was a founder who used to be here in Hong Kong, then moved to moved to the U.S. He, I think, his startup was somewhere in I think Palo Alto or something else like that, and he was pitching a VC in San Francisco. And uh, then uh, uh, the reason, uh, it, it could be uh, a folklore, but like uh, the reason why that investor said, I'm not going to invest in you is because you're too far away. <laughs> and the driving distance between San Francisco and pa- Palo Alto, wow. could, uh, you, really? you could sneeze that. Yes. That's definitely not happening anymore. Yeah, it, it is that it's way more accepted to to do calls like this because the teams are distributed anyway. But then again, of course, camera on, right? Just as a tip, is, is there any founders here that, uh, that that are looking for investment? Turn your camera on when you're on, on a call, right? People yeah. want to see your face at that point. One, one red flag. And that's especially for, for the Web3 space. There are a lot of projects in there that only have like... out. Generated profile pictures, NFT,
0: like heads,
1: <laughs> NFT heads, they and might. don't turn their camera on during investor meetings. That's that's a huge orange, almost red flag for for us, especially in the yeah, in the early stages. Yes.
0: Okay, so investors are okay that they're not worried that because people distribute it and you don't know where they are, people can just pack them and leave and take your money. No, no such worries.
1: <laughs> no there's usually there is a legal entity but uh, yeah there is a kyc right N- know your customer there should be a data room with all the information also from the founders like um, uh, a, 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 a passport scan um, okay. yeah. all, all, all those kind of things yes that's probably okay. more now than before right uh, but then again like it before all this and somebody would go and go to different um vCS to to pitch their product yeah they're there physically and people can see them but they're not also handing over their passport they say hey this is really me right it right, could still right. be somebody there on, on yeah of, without a passport or undocumented or something else like that yeah uh, most of the VCS are now quite comfortable in in investing into people that they only see uh, online of course like at one point there will be a way that people are going to or have done an investment into a, a project that where people are who are looking very normal like this but it turned out to be an AI or something yeah. else like that right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you
0: hands and like thumbnail and, like <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, like, like the funny part was like, oh, funny. It's it's not funny, but I read a, a, a an article about that there was a Chinese businessman was scammed out of I think four hundred thousand US dollars or something else like that, because a friend of him called him on on WeChat with a AI that nice. looked like the friend. Huh. And hey, can you wire me some money? Blocked all those kind of things, and and it was a very good friend of his, so he wired him some money, and that turned out to be a AI generated video call.
0: It looks right? so real
1: so, wow. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I have not heard about the details and that kind of thing, but yeah, I'm pretty sure there will be things there that that, that will go that way. But also there still, I like do your KYC. Uh, okay. Perfect. do at least as much as possible in, in hindsight would we'll say yeah like we, we've done enough to yeah like prevent scams but on the other hand like if you're investing into a scam then have you done your due diligence right on the market and uh, because quite often if it's a great idea then probably the return on investment for the founders would be very higher if they didn't scam so if you really have a great idea and you can just build it, yeah, then why not, right? So yeah, it's, to be honest, I always say there are different kind of VCs and not all the VCs are alike. And most of the, the scams are from VCs that have not done their due diligence right, yeah. aren't good at due diligence.
0: It was surprising that Sequoia <laughs> invested in FTX, right? And they're supposed to be yeah. the largest and most experienced.
1: That's, that's, yeah, but that's also a combination of uh, FOMO and everybody else is in and uh, and like they, in my point of view, didn't start out to as a as a scam, right? They just yeah made poor decisions along the way that yeah that they shouldn't have done, but. Yeah. Yeah, it is a uh, a challenge. There are a lot of, of course, the question is, when does a scam start and where does it end and where does a normal company start and where are you going to try to fake it until you make it and it becomes a scam? It is a little bit the, the, the challenge there because there are so many projects out there that eventually yeah, raise capital on uh, on on the wrong data or on the wrong metrics, and then maybe there are even bigger projects out there that made it and never came to light because they just returned multiple access for an investor.
0: Okay, let's go back to the topic on product market fit. Do you have any stories from your all the stories that you've seen in your okay. whole career? Any interesting? Product market fit stories, or especially if they go to foreign markets.
1: Yeah, one of the things that at one point we were um, building with Grayscale, we were building a website for a local Hong Kong conglomerate, part of a huge of a huge group, and we had a uh, multiple meetings with with management, and then just when it comes to culture, right? To get that client in, we were talking to a, a management trainee that was. Yeah, basically the project leader from their side. Mm. And then I said, hey, you've chosen us now to start this project. We have a kickoff meeting. We really want the general manager in that kickoff meeting because we want to see strategy-wise, which direction do they want to go into, uh, all, all those kind of things. And it took me probably around four phone calls and seven emails and totally probably two and a half to three hours in in time to convince and to give that management trainee enough information to for them to be comfortable to invite the general manager to that meeting. Because cultural-wise, it's that that general manager would say after the meeting, like, why did you get me into this meeting? This was like, this was a waste of my time.
0: Right.
1: Right. So, culture wise, when it comes to product fit, product market fit, or like even from this side, it's there's only one way to know that, and that's having people on the floor, or on, the, on the ground, foot on the floors in that area that know the, the dynamics and the culture. Right. Mm. Something similar for that same project was also that we suggested a design which had uh, multiple hexagons that was going over in on, on that website. And then, yeah, we just made hexagons. But then uh, we very quickly got the feedback like, hey, like hexagons is nice, but make the corners of that hexagon rounded because the sharp corners of hexagon is bad funks <laughs>
0: Well, Also for websites?
1: <laughs> also for websites, just... obviously.
0: I thought it was only, like, physical buildings and interior furniture. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Correct. but um, So that was like, okay. Uh, uh, and, and we did that, of course. But then again, I'm also very aware that here, here in Hong Kong, we have the Bank of China building, which has a lot of sharp corners, right? But then Feng Shui compensates that with um, a lion and some water and uh, a <laughs> front door and, 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 and that kind of thing. So, yes, yeah, so it can be something challenging if, if, you, if you build a product for uh, a, a, an area that you've never been. Like, of like also one of the uh, most uh, interesting uh, examples that I like quite often uh, uh, say and, and talk about is that uh, just imagine in the U.S. to somebody in, in the U.S. saying, hey, like you're using Uber, right? Yes. Like, why do you just, it's easy, convenient, eh? don't have to, yeah, I, I don't have to get money. Again, just can't get, get into to cap. But. If you're at that point think okay, there are markets here in Asia, Southeast Asia, where most of the people don't have credit cards. Yeah. But Uber still wants to get market share, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Yeah. One of the most obvious things is cash, right? But if you're just building your products with everything relevant, what you have as a reference is the US, then that product, if you would launch that in, say, for instance, India... That would not work because mm. the Indians don't have a credit card. You, how are you going to pay for your Uber then? Then you have to build something additional for that uh, localization part, which supports cash. Mm. And there are some other bigger ex- examples there, but that's one of the most yeah telling examples when it comes to localization. Also, one of the things is that language in, inside of your app, right? Yes, although a lot of people speak English, localization in, in, in the local language will increase your adoption way more than if you just keep it in English yep. even if it's just about yeah like, like for me personally I don't mind English my operating systems are although I'm a native Dutch all my operating systems already in uh, when I was growing up in the Netherlands were also all in English so for me I it's not a big uh, issue but Especially when you go beyond your early adopters, the local language is extremely important.
0: Yeah, especially like in Hong Kong and China, it's a completely different system, right? Like the Chinese language. And it affects your design as well.
1: Yeah, it definitely affects your design. It, um, it, It definitely affects your... One of the things, for instance, is that here in Hong Kong, of course, we have Uber here, but you also have a Hong Kong taxi app. Uh, and and one of the big differences is that I don't know where Hong Kong Taxi app got their location information from, but everything that I t- type in English as locations quite often is not found on the Hong Kong Taxi app. So I have to... Go to, for instance, the address, or I've, but not like the building name. Like in, in Hong Kong, for instance, also in Hong Kong, a, a lot of the navigation is done by building names, not mm. by street address, uh, the street name and, and the building number, right? Mm. The, the, the house number. No, it's usually IFC or Bank of China or yeah. Pacific Place. That also means that people will reference that if they start typing in the, the location that they want to go to inside of an app. Uh, probably Hong Kong taxi app has um, is better organized for the Chinese characters for that, and not the English uh, version of that. But okay, uh, uh, and then also in nine nine times of ten, if you book a taxi on the Hong Kong taxi app, the taxi driver will call you on your mobile phone mm-hmm. just to confirm yeah. and to be sure that where you want to go. Right. Right. While if you're used to Uber, it's just like you, you book your Uber, that you're connected and you put your phone in your pocket and you walk or you go and wait until the, the, the Uber arrives, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an additional step. So that's also a little bit of a culture thing because that's also what taxi drivers are used to, right? Mm-hmm.
0: They want to make sure you're there when they
1: come. They're, they want to make sure you're there and you don't, uh, because it's how people were used to, Yeah, book a taxi was they just called a taxi dispatcher and then they would say okay there will be a taxi on the way and then that driver would still call the person like hey are you really there yeah right so that's also a culture thing but also very interesting when uber left mainland china Mm. and then you had of course didi in mainland china and uber here in hong kong they had a deal that as soon as you're starting to use the app in a different location, it would switch also language. I was not able to use Didi in English language here in Hong Kong. Oh. It would automatically switch to the Chinese character version.
0: There's no Chinese.
1: But if I would go over the border here to mainland China, Mm. then at that point, and I would open up the Didi app, I would have the English version.
0: Why is because, it not in simplified Chinese then?
1: Because they, they they have an English version, of course, from the app. And if you are in mainland China, you can just use the English version of the app and also the, the simplified version, right? You, yeah. you could uh, select okay. uh, language. But as soon as you geographically go into Hong Kong, one of the deals was that uh, Didi would not supply their services in English to people in Hong Kong because that would hurt the uber. ubers <laughs> in hong kong because they were mostly servicing the english speaking clients oh. here in hong kong right that was part of the deal right you
0: have to switch to uber then <laughs> when you come to
1: home yes yes right i think now that deal is over and now you can use dd in in, in english also here, here in hong kong but there was a time that to a certain amount of time that they did when they were handing things over and Uber became a shareholder in DDS, as far as I know, they they had that in their deal terms that that was a setup. So also there is a lot of differences. And as you probably also know, also start realizing for people who are building products for Asia, that is Hong Kong China? Is China Hong Kong? <laughs> Uh, no, it's different and it's complicated, right? <laughs> uh, <even just> about <laughs> language. I, I, I was explaining this uh, earlier this week. Um, yes, like Cantonese is a language, right? Uh, probably the similar difference between um, uh, Portuguese and Spanish, right? Like, it's, it's there, there's a huge difference in language there. So, in Hong Kong, and a lot of mainland area around that people speak originally cantonese Mm. in mainland china parts of that cantonese speaking many years ago the local government implemented certified uh, simplified characters Mm -hmm. hong kong was never part of that so hong kong uses uh, traditional characters yeah but so cantonese traditional characters in hong kong cantonese simplified characters in the canton region (laughs) in in in, in mainland china right in the canton region but then if you go to taiwan you have traditional characters yeah but with yes (laughs) right and for somebody who's never been here or has no clue like that's extremely complicated because they like how how does that work so uh so that's uh, localization comes in play like we always probably all have a an opinion or an assessment or or, or of a different country but if you really live in a country for a certain amount of time you really start noticing the 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 subtle differences Mm. and then that will yeah, still make or break your, your product lounge in that area because then it really shows that you understand that region.
0: So what's your advice on what's the biggest mistakes to avoid when going to another region? Like, how do you do uh, that? Like, if you've never been yeah. to the country, what do you do?
1: Yeah, research the heck out of it. Get local experience, but not just a two weeks visit right Mm. now find people that like ux designers for instance in that area that are good that know the culture very well Mm. and hire them right Right. quite often what is that uh also also on on a larger scale big corporations yeah they would come say 20 years ago to mainland China with 200 Westerners to set up their business there if if you look at now it's still the same company same branding but you probably wouldn't find any Westerners anymore in in that company right they're all localised similar for if you want to launch a product in, in in a certain area, get local expertise and not as a consultant, uh, but like really put them in managerial positions that, that know the, the region very well and also have done product launches before because that's extremely important.
0: So do you think, especially with companies from the West coming over to Asia, is it more important to maintain the global brand or experience or just let the local team run with it and customize the hell out of it? (laughs) Like, how do you strike the balance, right?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. And it is a balance, right? Because you also, as a a global brand, don't want to lose your identity, right? And not that people are like, I didn't know that this is the same company, right? Like, there's no clear-cut answer to that question right it's it really the first reaction to the question is it depends right and which is an annoying way of answer but it, it really does because it really depends on the on the curb appeal of a product that's already there or not is the brand name worldwide already known right which market inside of that regional area that you want to start growing into and expanding into what kind of Services are you providing? What kind of audience are you targeting? Uh, Probably, if you're having a product, for instance, that's focused on youth, and you find out that the youth is very, I wouldn't say naturalistic, but very regionally aware, then you might want to brand yourself as a local brand, but then, for instance, buy. And then your international brand, right? Okay. Uh, quite often, also see if there is already a product out there that does something similar and is doing well. You might want to acquire them mm. because that will definitely help you. But then still, it also most of the acquisitions don't result in the in the uh, in the things that were expected to return in, right? Make or buy decisions can be uh, made there too, but. It's not easy. If it, if it was easy, then we just had a, a clear answer. It still depends. But one of the key things in in what I said also earlier is uh, language. Uh, have the local language, but also be aware of the local customs. That, for instance, cash in a in a in, a, yeah. in a, uh, booking app, um, even if it's just um, a food app or or, or something else. Mm.
0: It used to be the world was not as connected. Where when companies go global, it used to be more larger companies with a lot of budget, right? Uh, but now with AI and everything so connected, have you seen any changes? Can like a two person company go go to a foreign market easier nowadays or or not?
1: Yeah, uh, probably. Technically, yes. I'm still waiting for the one-person billion-dollar company, right?
0: Everything automated, <laughs> right?
1: Every, everything automated. It's Yeah, I wouldn't be highly surprised if that would happen at one point. It would be probably a very clever person anyway, but and they, we probably would have a lot of freelancers around him. But yeah, technically already, especially in, in, in the Web3 space, mm-hmm. Yeah, if you just have a team of 10 people, yeah, you could build something for an international market and then also uh, and also scale that up. So yeah, I, I definitely see that when it comes to early adopters, people have no problem in stepping over some of the some of the challenges that would occur when it when you're looking for scale up. Mm. But yeah, A lot of people are using decentralized exchanges, and I'm pretty sure most of the decentralized exchanges are not focused on certain geographical areas. But then again, probably most of the people who have cryptocurrencies have not used a decentralized exchange yet or wouldn't even know how to use it. I think localization comes with mass adoption when it comes to early adopters. Yeah, they will be able to, yeah, forgive you for challenges when it comes to localization.
0: Early adopters are really patient people.
1: <laughs> One or the other thing, I'm getting back to the web three space there. But in America, it's very accepted to use credit cards, right? But And in other countries, it's very accepted to use cash. Yeah. But for instance, if you're doing a, a payment provider or if you're doing an on- on-ramping for exchanges then, yeah, you have to have the local, for instance, bank wire services. For instance, in in the Netherlands, that's ideal. Ideal is the the, the bank transfer payment provider, right? If you are a, a service that wants to get people to use your service by them wiring you money, then, yeah, you can ask them to wire money to a bank in the UK that is going to... But that's a lot of cost but also a lot of hassle like why would somebody from the netherlands wire money to the uk right if you if you incorporate into your product that local banking system and they can just use that in one or two clicks to pay and or to transfer money uh, from their local bank account to the local payment provider then there is less friction and there's more trust there. So also there, that's also very important when it comes to in uh, in, in, in digital products.
0: So last question, what are some success cases you found or in, in terms of product market fit?
1: Uh... Also, that's a good question because if it's a success case, you don't realize it's a success case. Hmm. Right? Because it's just there and you're using it. Okay. Right? 99% of design is invisible. If something is a success case, it doesn't stand out as a success case because it's just there and it's logical that it's there. So when it comes to success cases, probably, yeah, you have to, when you look at the growing ones, then... The- any,
0: any startups that you help, like they struggle to find product Market Fit and they finally found it and why that happened or What they did the right to... Technically,
1: happen. technically, most of the startups struggle to find product market fit, right? Oh. Uh, also, there is it's it's quite often a challenge for them. But there aren't many startups that I've seen that never struggled to get product market fit. Mm.
0: Why Why is it so difficult, you think?
1: <sighs> because most of the founders have a solution and try to find a problem around it. <laughs> okay,
0: It's like the other way uh,
1: around. Yeah. And even if they are. If they have the right mindset and they and they find a problem and they're looking for a technical solution to solve that problem, does it mean that the market is big enough? Or does it mean that the problem there is large enough to to support the business, or maybe even at that point have enough runway to actually execute that? Right? Okay. Or there may be a bigger, more funded, more war chest other entity comes in and wipes you off the of the planet. It's, it is still I've seen a lot of founders, also as an investor that comes to the table and then I ask them like, how many like potential clients have you actually interviewed not with we have this problem or we have this solution, would you buy it? But is this a problem for you? Yes. And how are you currently solve it? Mm-hmm. And if money was no object, like how would you solve it? If you have the magic wand, like how would you potentially, not even, hey, random user that I'm talking to right now, if you had a magic wand, how would you solve this? Right? The amount of times that I've said to people, please read Four step to Epiphany from Steve Blank's. <laughs> right just read it spend a day or two reading that book and implement that into your journey and then still people will like ah, i'm going to build this app and going to, ah,
0: okay right. it's scissor happy it's like code happy like just jump right into building before they know what to build
1: yes 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 it's not so, startup education or it's 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 usually the enthusiastic way of, of of somebody who's never been there before mm-hmm. and it's just like they and i admire them for the enthusiasm and i admire them for really wanting to build something the problem only is that hey i'm pointing you now to that direction are you coachable or not and if they still at that point go to the other side and start building it i'm like okay then you're not yet on the point that you're coachable might be that you're coachable in two years from now, but at this point, yeah, your enthusiasm still takes over from common sense. Yeah, yeah but that's fine because don't burn money right? <laughs> and, and the only reason why I know that is because I've been there, right? Mm-hmm. I've learned from that. Like yeah. I've, I some, I was at a, a pitching event earlier last month, and I also said I sometimes just feel like the that older gentleman in your street where you were playing as a kid that started shouting don't play on the street kids because there are cars here and you will get run over and you as a kid (laughs) do not play on the street and there are kids getting uh hit by cars and yeah they have to go to the hospital and and that kind of thing, right? It is a little bit like yeah. That's a good uh, analogy. (laughs) Yeah it's a lot of ideas, ideas are cheap, execution is is what brings things to the table, but smart execution is something totally different. And that's usually also what I'm looking for, smart execution, that people, that if I ask a founder, hey, but what about X, Y, Z? And then they like, we thought about it. We know that, uh, great question, uh, but this. You should know your market. You should know your user. Say it's now Saturday morning, 10 a.m., right? You should know exactly what your user is doing right now. Mm -hmm. Where they are, in which stage they are, how much money in their pocket do they have, what their mindset is, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You should be able to to know your customer before you start building 100%. Yes.
0: So what was the... To summarize, like what's the one takeaway you want the audience to learn from
1: you? Validate. Please validate. And not in the sense of we're going to build this product, do you want to buy it? But in is this a problem? And how
0: many users and- you need to hear that they validated before they will convince you to invest in their startup?
1: When I'm like w- when I'm teaching, I say to my students, I give them a an arbitrary number of 150 right Mm -hmm. but uh, then very quickly after that I would say as soon as you start interviewing somebody you have 15 questions and if they answer already five questions and you will be able to with an educated guess know where this interview will be going you're probably on the point that you have interviewed enough people Mm -hmm. right and do it in person so quality over quantity Right. Uh, 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 we just started with the academic year and one of the student teams that, that I'm working with, they they made a questionnaire, right? A, a, a survey. And, just then, and then to validate their business ID, right? And one of the questions was, would you buy this product and what would you pay for it? Yeah. right. So then at that point I said to him, like, okay, let's turn it around. Would you buy a mobile phone? Yes. Okay. What would you want to pay for the mobile phone a hundred dollars two hundred dollars five hundred dollars a thousand dollars now i want to pay a hundred dollars okay what did you pay for your phone yeah eight eight hundred dollars nine hundred dollars right In, <laughs> into us anyway I, okay but now your survey says 100 while the user actually paid 900 <laughs> or a thousand dollars right? So there is discrepancy in in, in your data. Like it's good, right? You cannot ask these kind of questions in the very early stage when you start validating a a product.
0: Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Uh, I love doing these interviews because I learned so much more about my friends than than a normal conversation, right? (laughs) So if the audience wants to get in touch with you, uh, is there like an email or site? uh, Maybe you can leave it with me and we could put on the
1: yeah uh, you can probably find me on linkedin you can also find me on twitter and shamelessly plug i also have a podcast about startup lessons learned called maya culpa startup lessons learned i will also send you the link for that
0: okay awesome thank you jeffrey
1: thank you